0: Hey everyone, I'm your host, Wesley Tran, and welcome to Recovering Travel Junkie, a podcast where we'll be discussing how traveling has impacted a person's personal growth and purpose, and we'll be diving deeper to understanding the world's different human beings. Welcome to Recovering Travel Junkie, and I'm Wesley. And today, we have a special friend of mine, she is the founder of the Meraki Project. She's created her own quarantine fitness plan, and she's an avid country music fan. She is my friend, Anika Phillips. Welcome.
1: Hi, thanks for inviting me and thinking of me. I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course. And so i like to start this question off to everyone I interview. Do you remember where or how we first met?
1: Yeah. So we never met, we met through WhatsApp first. So you were traveling and you met a friend, my best friend and my housemate and a colleague that I was working with. And then we were really tired and we'd been <laughs> doing a lot of stuff and we were like, let's book some tickets to California because uh, they were on sale. So we booked them on New Year's and then months, like weeks went by and we had nowhere to stay. And she was like, Oh, I know a, a guy I met one time for like three minutes. And and uh, he's in California, maybe <laughs> we can message him. Uh, and we she ended up messaging you, and I got your number, and then we ended up actually hosted us our whole uh vacation and rest during California <laughs> when we were there. Um, and that's how we met, it's kind of a funny way, but you were you were yeah, such a blessing it
0: was super funny, us. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, Anika, you grew up in a small island in Nova Scotia, Canada, an island called mm-hmm. Cape Breton. Can you tell us where exactly it is and how life was there growing up?
1: Yeah. Um, so Cape Breton is like almost as far eastern Canada as you can go. There's some other provinces further into the ocean uh, than us. Uh, so Cape Breton, like you said, is the island part of Nova Scotia. So it's just off the end of it, um, and we are connected to like main part of Nova Scotia just by a little bridge. Um, and I grew up in a small area of it called Marguerite. Uh, the population is probably just like a few hundred people and we're all related somehow. Um,
2: <laughs>
1: so I was always around like family or my classmates were like my cousins. <laughs> um, and I think looking back now, like I, I could never live here again. Um, but looking back Why now, I'm that? so thankful that this is where I'm what, um, The world's much bigger. <laughs> I, I think mm. I've explored too yeah. much of it to come back to a very small rural place. Um, mm. But growing up, like you always, Around family and friends. And thankfully, like, I've heard stories from friends who grew up in big cities, and there was a lot of like drugs and alcohol abuse, even at like young ages. And I didn't even really know what alcohol was until I was like 15 to 16. We were just, I think, a lot of like my friends and I, we just grew up outside playing sports. Like, we're right beside the river and the ocean and the mountains. And so much of my childhood was on like four wheelers and snowmobiles and hiking and walking and playing in the woods. And it was such like a I think a whole amazing way to grow up and to be raised. And I'm so thankful. Uh, though I didn't see it then,
2: mm-hmm. I'm thankful
1: that this is where I was raised. Um mm-hmm. and yeah, I think it really instilled like a sense of adventure in me. And I got I went into school in French, uh, which is nice. And then I learned oh, wow. Spanish, which was easier. Um, so yeah, just growing up learning different languages and and being in the woods essentially. <laughs> uh was, I don't know, I think it was a really good foundation to grow up in.
0: That's so cool, yeah. And what are you most proud of about Cape Breton like that you would brag about to someone like only Cape Breton has this?
1: Um, I would say our sense of friendliness, um, probably friendliness and nature. Like there's views and scenery here like I've never seen across the world but there's such a sense of like real community and people taking care of each other because, you know, my parents grew up here and my grandparents grew up here and their grandparents grew up here and everyone kind of grows up around each other and, you know, their parents and their grandparents and their sister and their daughter and their dog and whoever, but because of that, you have a sense of like taking care of each other. Um, you know, if someone's sick, you make sure that there's food brought to them. If someone's in the hospital, someone's ready to take care of that person's child. If, um, just whatever it is, there's such a sense of community and friendliness. And um, though it's really rural and so far away from the world, it's just got its own sense of taking care of each other. And not because they want to get anything out of it, but just because they love each other and they know each other. And even if you're not related, if you're in the community, you know, your family. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: I have, it's a sense of community like that that I haven't really experienced in anywhere else.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
1: probably brag about I love it. Everyone's so nice.
0: (laughs) That is so cool. And so Cape Breton is known for their Celtic Colors Festival. Can you tell us about that festival? What goes on during that time?
2: Yeah.
1: So most of the settlers on Cape Breton Island, because, you know, yeah, we're Scottish and Irish. uh, And that Scottish and Irish uh, culture was carried throughout the years. Um, So my mom's actually used to be fluent in Gaelic. And we have a Gaelic college. We actually have the largest community of native speaking Gaelic people in the world, more than Ireland and Scotland. Um, yeah, and there's tons of fiddlers. I remember growing up um and going to like a kitchen party. So on Sundays you'd have like a lobster boil and you'd go to someone's house and they'd have like a piano in their kitchen and people would bring fiddles and guitars and you'd dance. And that's just very much part of like (laughs) like our culture. And I didn't even notice it growing up, but I see now that's quite unique. And so the Celtic Colors Festival is this 10-day festival um, where fiddlers, essentially, but also like guitar players. um, And bands come from Ireland and Scotland primarily and then all over Canada, any place with really a Celtic history. Mm -hmm. Um, And they come and they dance and they sing and there's music and performances. And there's, you know, you you can learn to step dance if you want. There's dances every day, everywhere in people's kitchens or in halls. And then there's bigger events where there's like, maybe 10,000 people gather for a concert. And then every evening after all the concerts have finished across the island, uh, all the musicians come together and play until four in the morning at a big hall. And you can go and you can get a drink and some food and sit by the fire and dance until 4am. And then you can eat pancakes and go home and start it again. Um, And it's actually, yeah, it's actually really fun. Uh, I was so frustrated with with it when I was a child because they would come to like our school and I'd be like, it's my fiddlers again. (laughs) And now I just have so much fun. Like I love to square dance. I'm horrible at it, but I think
2: it's really (laughs) fun. Um,
1: and it's just so cool. Like I think music is obviously a form of art and watching so many people come from different places and enjoy it and laugh and share and dance all day. And people in all the communities across the Island, open up their homes and their local halls. And yeah, that's what it is. And it's, it's a lot of fun
0: yeah that's something unheard of for me as someone who's gone to a good amount of festivals is people opening up their own homes inviting Mm -hmm. them for food and dance and music yeah you have to
2: come one day
0: that's on my list for sure I think me and Riley made a pact that we're gonna go (laughs) when uh we have a lot of time on our hands and a lot of money on our hands
1: (laughs) yeah it's actually like well if you like if you came you could obviously stay with us Um, Once again, like the Cape Breton Hospitality, you'd have somewhere to stay. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of like free events, like learning how to square dance or some of the concerts are free. Some of them are more expensive, but honestly, just coming out, it would be so much fun. And I would totally recommend doing all 10 days. um, So you don't just go from like morning to night and nonstop, but you could like kind of pick and choose during the week. Um, And the whole island is like sold out. Like There's not an Airbnb, a hotel that's typically available. Um, Yeah, so I, before COVID nineteen, I was working, um, just helping my mom. She runs a resort. I was helping her with some reservations, and someone called to book during the Celtic Colors Festival, and I was like, "Oh, sorry, we're, we're sold out." And it was like January, and they're like, "But it's in October." And I was
0: like, "Wow, yeah, we're that's sold. crazy."
1: <laughs> yeah. And
0: how many people come to this festival?
1: Uh, honestly, I'm wanted. not sure. I like, because it spans all across the island and there are like dozens of small communities across the island mm-hmm. that host people or like have venues. I'm not sure how much it'd be, but it'd be in like the, like tens of thousands
2: of people. Okay. Wow. Yeah.
0: And it's called the Celtic Colors because the fall colors start showing mm. themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And how do you think that plays into the whole atmosphere of the festival?
1: Um. Well, it's... Have you ever... I don't know what California is like in the fall. Do your leaves change colors?
0: <laughs> so Southern California, the leaves do not change.
2: Okay. <laughs> I didn't think so. That English,
0: that's what it looks like. But <laughs> okay. NorCal, it kind of changes. Like there okay. are some trees that can kind of turn red and kind of turn orange. That's about right. it. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's green. <laughs>
2: Yeah. So
1: Cape Breton is really mountainous um, though. They're not really tall mountains. we uh, were very hilly, I guess the whole Island and there's lots of like cliff face and stuff. So there's forests just everywhere. Um, and once a year, obviously Celtic colors is placed very strategically for about two weeks. When the leaves change, there's two weeks of just brilliant, like bright red, bright orange, bright yellow. And really it only holds, I'd say maybe 12 to 14 days. Like, it kind of lasts a month, but it it takes a bit for it to change. And then it's fully changed. And that might only even last 10 days. And Celtic colors is always right, like smack in the middle of it. Um, And I think because it's stunning, like in ways like I actually can't describe, you should look at photos. um, Mm -hmm. And all of our mountains change and the forest changes. And it's such a rare time. Like it only happens once a year for like less than two weeks, really like the full bloom of it. I think it just adds to the atmosphere because seeing beautiful things makes people happy anyways. Like, you know, when you see a big waterfall or a mountain and people are like, wow, it's amazing. That's Very what the amazing. whole island is like for that whole period um, during Celtic Colors. So yeah, I think wow. just the combination of the music and then the scenery and it's so bright, even if it's raining because everything's bright red and bright orange and bright yellow. Mm-hmm. Um, it just adds to like the light and everyone gets excited because mm-hmm. it's so pretty and it's so rare and, Yeah, I think it definitely, that's how it would add to the atmosphere for sure.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Because I remember my first experience of fall slash autumn was when I was in London slash Wales, just because California (laughs) doesn't experience like every tree turning a different color, nor do the leaves fall. And so in the fall time, (laughs) they They just stay there forever. (laughs) <laughs> and so it was weird walking around parks in London and seeing leaves on the ground because that was just never the thing in California. And it's just so awesome to, for this fall time to fully flourish, especially where music is thriving and dancing. Mm-hmm. And it's just a joyous time to celebrate the beauty that's happening around you.
1: Yeah, definitely. You have to come someday on my list (laughs) i'll hold you to it
0: all right well i plan on coming with riley so we are gonna go (laughs) so anika i know you're so passionate about helping people and serving others where did this passion come from and what made you want to just do it for the rest of your life um so like i said i was raised like really
2: rural
1: um, which had its uh, pros and cons. I think the con, the negative side of it, is that I was really unaware of the world, um, and I thought war was the thing of the past. I thought there was like World War One and World War Two and like Marvel movies. Like I didn't know that the whole world was going through life and love and death and and a bunch of things. Like and I, I think I was just so far removed from that. And then when I was about fifteen years old, I was in grade ten. Or, yeah. Um, an organization or a nonprofit came to our school and they were sharing about war and famine in East Africa and a rebel group at the time that was terrorizing many countries and many people. And I remember sitting where I was in my high school auditorium, and even though my like I grew up in a small community, it was we had like 13 communities, in one school, so there's a few hundred of us. We're sitting in the high school auditorium and I just tears were like streaming down my little 15-year-old face, and I was so shocked that there was actually like war and displacement happening around the world and that it wasn't a thing of the past. And like I said, I just grew up really ignorant of that um, or protected depending on how you see it. But I remember looking around like my high school, retirement and looking at my classmates and being like, if this is happening, like we have to go do something. We have to go do something like now. And obviously at 15, I had no idea what that was. It was the first time I'd ever heard about war really happening today. Mm -hmm. um but it really I think shook my heart and I knew the people that were presenting to us they were working primarily with well they worked with a lot of people but with children was their main focus and I just discovered and learned through them that obviously well obviously but the majority of the time the most the people most affected by war are, are children and millions of children were fleeing for their lives and that really upset me um it just really I think shook me like I said and I laid in bed that night and cried and didn't sleep, and I was <laughs> thinking I was so disturbed by it, and so like I just couldn't understand that if people were hurting, why we weren't helping them. Um, but obviously, also at 15, you know, I had no skills, that nothing I could do. So in high school, I just fundraised money for that organization to the best of my ability, um, asked people for birthdays or Christmases to donate money to them instead, um, yeah. and and then when I graduated high school. I went to Uganda to to volunteer, which is the country I'd heard about at the time. And the war had since passed, and you know, the country was recovering from it pretty well. But there were still lots of kids hurt and displaced by it. And at 17, 18, I still didn't know how to help. It was a young, ambitious, passionate Western woman saying, like, just let me help somehow. Um, so I don't think I necessarily helped in the most constructive ways, but that's the first six months I spent there. I think taught me a lot, um, opened my eyes to a lot. But yeah, that's probably where it stemmed from. And my, also my mom is like the most generous, kind human. And my whole life, even like there were moments where my family struggled like to pay for food or clothes. Um, and I don't think I really noticed when I was a kid looking back, I can see the gaps where sometimes we really struggled financially. But my mom's first priority, even when we had nothing, was to still give stuff away to other people who she thought needed it more, whether that was food or a spare t-shirt or whatever, it was, or cash to someone or some food bank or something. I think growing up watching that example had a big impact. And then when I heard about just how much suffering was happening and really learned about it, I think watching her and learning from her my whole life had probably a a bigger impact saying like, you know, if this is happening, we need to just still give and still help however we can, locally and globally.
0: Wow, that's awesome. And I know one of the most impactful places that you were serving was in Peru serving at an orphanage there and Can you tell us what that experience was like?
2: yeah, um so i was I spent six
1: months in the Andes mountains, so I was what nine hours into the mountains um and it was just a home for abandoned children. There was only fifteen of them. Um, typically it kind of fluctuated. It could be 14 to 24 really. And mm-hmm. I think I was still young. I was 19 when I did it. And once again, just heard about that children's home and what they were doing really wanted to be part of it. Um, and so a lot of my days, when I'm really honest, like nothing glamorous happened. I think sometimes when we serve abroad, especially, um, and if I'm honest, just from a Western perspective, when it's people of maybe another ethnicity or culture, We think like, oh, you know, just take a picture, go to something flashy and we've accomplished something. But I think what Wapru really grounded to me and taught me. I didn't do that much. Like I helped farm um, the cook of that children's home. I quit the day before I got there or the day I got there. Um, And I've like never cooked a meal in my life. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) Um, But all of a sudden I was cooking and preparing, helping prepare meals for like 24 people, three times a day and proving cuisine is very uh, there's a lot that goes into it. <laughs> and, um, okay. I helped a farm as best as I could. I, you know, we walk the kids to and from school, help pre- like prep and cook. And then the people who oversaw the orphanage, they had a little nine month old girl. So I primarily looked after her really a lot of the time. And, um, I think it was very much God's timing. Everything kind of lined up like it was the perfect time for me to arrive, the cook to quit and then to really need a babysitter (laughs) Um, and then I worked helping teach some of them English and yeah I think what it really taught me was that ministry or serving or just helping someone does not have to be flashy and it doesn't have to be one grand like look I built a house for someone but it's a lot of just doing life beside someone like for me mm. to get up in the morning and you know feed a nine month old baby, walk the girls to school, come home, start cooking, maybe help in the farm. there's nothing great about that at all, um, mm. but sometimes the best way to help people or to be beside people is to just do that is just be beside them. Mm-hmm. I think I learned that, yeah, you don't need to have a big goal or a big tenure scheme, but sometimes just doing life with someone and just loving people where they are and having Mm -hmm. them love you. Like I think you'll discover in ministry or serving or helping, you know, not like in our families or home, abroad, wherever it is, Mm
0: -hmm. um
1: the most rewarding bits are just like actually walking through life with people. And you'll always actually be served probably more than you serve. You know, we often go into volunteering or what whatever it is, thinking like, I'm gonna go help others, but you learn and you grow and you are served and loved by those you're trying to serve and love. Um, Yeah, yeah, I think, I don't know if that makes sense, but I think if I learned anything, it was probably just that just walk beside people in their day-to-day life and learn from them and love them there and just be a friend. Um,
2: Mm, And I think that's that's carried in. Yeah.
0: So at 18 years old, how did you, and you wanted to serve people, how did you know you wanted to go abroad? especially into Peru, which is so far away from Cape Breton to serve people?
2: Um,
1: yeah, I think, I don't really know what drew me to Peru. I think I had spent a year kind of, well, like nine months traveling. I came back to Canada to work. Um, and wasn't sure if I wanted to go into university or to travel again. Um, heard about, it was called Village, it, is, it still exists, it's called Village of the Children, this children's home and just knew that I didn't, I still had a lot to learn, still wanted to travel and yet serve. Um, mm. and yeah, I don't know uh, when it comes to Peru specifically, I think it was more just, I knew I wasn't done traveling, wasn't done learning and wanted to keep going, heard about a country and just that one area and that one like children's home that's doing amazing things. and wanted to be part of that. Um, mm-hmm.
2: yeah.
0: Mm. And I know we've talked about this in the past, but the topic of volunteerism is what often draws people to volunteer. So what are your thoughts about volunteerism and do you think we can actually separate it to volunteering and tourism as two separate things?
1: Yeah, I think, um, like, I don't know how much, how honest do you want me to be? be <laughs> I think brutally
0: honest. <laughs>
1: okay. I'm sorry if I like offend anyone. If anyone listens to this, I'm so sorry. But like I at 17, 18, I think my heart was in the right place. Of I really, I really was disturbed that people were hurting and that there was something maybe I could do. um I had no experience, no stories, and no anyone who was doing anything. Um, so just kind of very ignorantly went. And I think I, my heart was in the right place in so many people's hearts are in the right place. You know, they hear about someone who's hurting and they really do want to go help. Um, and I don't think that's wrong whatsoever. I think there's a very large Western white savior complex um, of there's someone of another ethnicity. I'm going to go build them a house and take a picture
2: mm-hmm. and
1: then hike a waterfall. And, you know, I've done like my good deed for my life. Uh, and that's where volunteerism comes in, I think. I don't know. I think people's hearts are, like I said, often so in the right place, but now I know I'm only 23, but with hindsight now having my own charity and my own nonprofit and actually working in one country consistently for five years. uh, So I've gone back and forth to Uganda for, well, it's actually almost six years now. Um, and just having my own center, I see (laughs) how harmful volunteerism is, uh, how conceited it can be and how selfish it can be.
2: And that's why I said. I really
1: don't want to like offend anyone if they listen to this, but I I was that person. I didn't know it. And like I said, a lot of people I don't think will know it. Um, I think volunteerism is dangerous and harmful in mm-hmm. a lot of cases. And charities often say like, "Come volunteer for us for a month." You know, like I see ones in Uganda who will say are nonprofits that will say like, "You know, you pay four hundred US dollars for your rent," which that rent is probably like fifty US dollars. So I don't know why you're paying that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why they do it because they need income. And if they give you a hammer and a nail or give you a child to sit on your lap for a day, like you feel like you've accomplished something, but they've gotten the funds they need to be supported. And that's harmful on that nonprofit's part as well. I see that and have witnessed that in dozens of nonprofits. Um, and I think sometimes like if you want to go explore a country, please go explore country. Even if it's, just, like, if it's a developing country, like Uganda has so much to offer. I'm speaking about Uganda because like, it's primarily where I've been. Um, they have stunning safaris and stunning culture and history and, and places you can actually go visit and benefit the tourism there. And there's, I don't think there's any harm in like sometimes when I go out, I will stop at like a safari park and pay to do the tourism bit of do a safari through the park, actually just spend an amazing day seeing the animals and continue to our base. And so I think there's a huge difference between tourism and volunteering. And when you blend them together, it's really harmful. So if like if you're if you fly to a country to go to an orphanage for a day, that's more like volunteerism. If you fly to a country to serve for a year and you get to see the tourism side and you actually get to experience their safaris or whatever it is, but then you do spend like that time actually serving, not for the picture, not for feeling good, but because actually need someone hands-on for a period of time. Um, That's volunteering. I think you can do both in the same trip, but doing a trip of like, like I see people tour an orphanage for a day and take pictures with with children and post them on social media. And like that baby may actually not have children, and have, sorry, that baby may not actually have parents. And so you get to cuddle them and hold them and he feels nice for a second, then you put them down. Um, And so like touring an orphanage or touring, I don't know something like that. Like I think that's harmful. Does that make mm-hmm.
0: sense?
1: I'm just trying to separate like the two. of does.
0: Them. Yeah, that is very well stated too. Just because sometimes, like Point Loma, for example, often offers mission trips to Mexico, and mm-hmm. it's a ministry with Mexico. We're working alongside with a church in Mexico to build churches. But sometimes the reason people go is just because, oh, I've never been to Mexico before. Yeah. That intention right there to wanna see Mexico, but do the work of helping a church, oftentimes it don't blend together and actually has harmful results because of it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Like I um, I've had someone say to me, he said, Oh, you know, I I heard you were now missing a person for one of your projects and you gone to all come out for a month. And I said, okay, well, like, why? What's like, what's your motivation? And he said, well, I've never been to Africa. And I said, okay, like, if you want to explore the continent of Africa, um, or if you want to explore Uganda, please go. Like they, like Uganda and countries across Africa have such a rich culture and history. Go explore them. Go camp and do safaris and take friends and do stuff like that. But do not use refugee children to do it. To see the country. Like, that's not your way to see or support the country if it's to actually see the country, you know, just like you just said. And so I think sometimes it's like, and they don't, you know, people at Point Lomo, they probably wouldn't even mean anything harmful by saying, like, I've never been to Mexico. I wanna go to Mexico. It seems like a beautiful country and I'd love to serve as I do it. But I think it's just checking in on, like, what is my motivation? Do I really actually wanna build a church or do I just wanna go to the beach? And then, figuring that
2: out for yourself. And that's something that everyone has to assess in themselves, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I, very
0: well said. Yeah, everything you've just said about volunteerism, is just, that's such a great perspective on it. And let's transition into your time in London, how that city has impacted you. I've heard you found a lover there too. So this <laughs> has yeah. definitely an impact on how was moving from such a small island, Cape Breton, and living in the Andes Mountains to one of the most densest and populous cities mm-hmm. in the world impacted you.
1: Um, yeah, so originally I moved to Oxford uh, to do an internship, which is a city just, it's actually not that far from London. Um, and I was actually working in London a day or two a week through that internship. Um, so I was always back and forth and then like, I, I ended up moving to London. Um, I was really overwhelmed at first and I absolutely hated it. <laughs> um, I'd been to the UK five times before and thought it was dirty and thought it was gray and rainy and thought everyone was really mean. And then when, so when I took the internship, people were like, why on earth are you doing an internship there of all places? Like of all the countries you've visited, you hate that place. And I was like, I just know I meant to do it. Um, and obviously I fell in love with it. Like I love, it feels like my home now. So don't worry. I don't actually, if anyone's listening from London, I don't hate London or UK. <laughs> It's amazing. It's my home. Um, but honestly I hated it at first and I actually wanted to come home. And I remember like calling up my mom the first like two months and being like, well, I was like 21 and like, Mom, I just want to come back. <laughs> and she's like, she was like, it's okay. Like you don't need to be embarrassed. You can come home. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, I think it was like, yeah it was really populated <laughs> There's a lot of people everywhere which when you live in a town or you're from a town of just like a few hundred people um and even going like into peru and uganda like you said in the mountains and in villages like going to a city of millions of people you're like there's people everywhere and why does it smell like that <laughs> um, but i think what i read like what's a big thing that i've learned from being in the uk and being in europe in general um, I love that the rest of the world is at your fingertips. Um so working in East Africa is really easy to travel back and forth. Uh I can go to Barcelona for the weekend, which I've done or Ireland or wherever, and that's amazing. And you can go so I've gone to Amsterdam for the day before. I went at like six in the morning, came back at like 11 p.m. and just went to like museums. Wow. Um, but I thought it was so amazing that countries could exist so close that it had different cultures and backgrounds and languages that you could learn from. Um mm-hmm. In a small town, everyone has the same mindset here, Uh, or often Mm -hmm. they have the same mindset. It's very narrow minded. Like I said, I didn't know war existed until I was 15. Uh, When you're in somewhere like London, I'd say it's almost every country in the world is there, and people who are different than you and have different faiths and interests and languages and backgrounds and way of thinking like you can't be narrow minded anymore. And so it really opened up my mind and perspective. And you realize like your way is not the only way of life. There's so much to learn from and see around you. And then also, I think Canada and America, I mean, you can say yes or no if you agree with this, but we focus so much on education. Like, unless you have eight years and a master's degree or bachelor's degree, whatever, you can't even become like a secretary. Like, it's just impossible. Like, you need to spend hundreds of thousands and go bankrupt and broke until you're 50 just to get a degree that you could have done without all that. And not every, like, I I mean, like, nurses and doctors probably go to university but I mean in many cases um we just I think we almost overvalue education in the form of a classroom and mm. in the UK I did a lot of jobs and have been offered like project managing positions I got to start my own nonprofit there and had a whole base of support and people didn't care that I had I didn't have a degree they cared about my experience um but what I could actually do with my hands but what I could present to them and what I could pull off and it wasn't about you know here I would never be offered a project managing position in Canada like never not unless I had a degree of some form um or yeah or an administration position and yet I have been offered that because of my experience and it makes you feel like I don't know I think just sometimes in North America or Canada we must be overvalue education like I said in the form of a classroom Mm because it's not the only way of learning I don't think like Mm -hmm. My own opinion. I don't think you just learn in a classroom. You learn by traveling and working and learning from other people and actually getting your hands on and messing it up and then trying it again and again and again and working your way up. And the UK really values that. Um, you really can work your way up. And you know, here I I've talked about starting a nonprofit before in Cape Breton, and people would laugh and say it's impossible. And now, you know, a year and a half into mine, or less than that, we have. 122 kids in our program, and a whole basis backing wow. us in the UK without any degrees or anything like that. Um,
2: wow.
1: And I think that's been a big learning and encouraging thing for me, and it's been where I grow and flourish. I think because
0: wow.
2: a large, large, because of that.
0: That is so amazing. And can you tell us how the process was starting this nonprofit and just taking it off the ground and into Uganda? <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um, I don't really know. I think mm-hmm. I'd finished my nonprofit. or sorry, I finished, sorry, I finished my internship and I was offered possibility of a job of working in Australia or in France and through them. And I think I was really excited. It was really amazing and unique. And, and yet I just knew it wasn't what I was always passionate about. Like since I had been 15, I'd always been so focused on meeting children displaced by war and aiding them in the most respectful and uplifting way I could. Um, and so then, yeah, prayed about it and knew that it was what I was meant to do. And then I was like, okay, great. So I declined the jobs. Um, and then was like, what do I do now? And then and it, I just, I tried to figure out everything I could possibly know about Uganda, about wars happening in South Sudan, because uh, that's who we now work with, South Sudanese refugees. What that looked like, the history, any organization working there. I talked to people who worked in the UN, anyone who knew anything about any topic that I was trying to do. I just asked people relentlessly. And I went down a billion different avenues and I spent hours doing things that never even helped. But I just dove forward trying to learn first. Um, And within a few months, I had a small team. I had approval from the Ugandan government to go in and have a the refugee camp for a month. I had a school to partner with us. Orphanage to partner with us, and I had private funding. Um, and I honestly, it was just like relentless. I was working a full time job, and then I would stay up all night just trying to plan whatever I could. And if I'm really honest, like, I think it can for me, it was that God opened every door for the right timing, and because it was the right timing, it worked. Um, Mm. those months, like looking back, are kind of a blur, honestly. I would work all day and then get on a bus to London because I was still living in Oxford my friend and I would like Ellen, we would work all night. Um, yeah. And then we, we did our pilot project, uh, with the hope of we went in not being, we didn't want to go in and be like, you're a refugee. Let us help you. Because people, whether they're displaced or not still have dignity and have more experience than you. Like I'm 23. So I'm not going to walk up to a 50 year old who's fled from war and taken their children and survived and rebuilt and say like, you're poor. I need to help you. Um, because that's often the attitude toward refugees. And I knew that they were far more intelligent and educated than me and their circumstance was far beyond their control. And I just wanted to know what resources they had and how we could possibly empower them with what we had and work together. And so that's all we did for a month. Just sat with them, got to know the kids in the school and what their talents were, what they liked to do, talk to parents and ask them how they wanted to be part of it, how we could support them. Returned to the UK, Created a program that we thought could benefit them while still uplifting them, letting them pioneer what they could and using their resources before ours.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: didn't sleep for a few months again, and then returned and launched the market Project. Uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I don't know if that makes it. It was kind of all blur. It was just the right doors opened, um,
2: and yeah.
1: a lot of I think starting a nonprofit is fighting past the discouragement because there will be a lot of it. And a lot mm. of failure and a lot of wrong avenues you go down, and a lot of people laughing and saying like, "What are you trying to do? You're young, or you're you know, inexperienced, sometimes." Or, um, and it's just knowing what's in your heart and counting the cost of it, like, "Am I willing to fail, be laughed at, this possibly not work, and still like do it relentlessly?" You know?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's so cool. And can you describe to us your experiences in Uganda? Like I know, at least when you started the nonprofit, your first trip was just to build relationships with the people there. How did you build relationships with the people there? And then second trip was to actually provide them with the needs and services.
1: Yeah, Um, so how we built relationships, I think primarily when you come in from another country, whether you want to or not, you have a sense of status. Uh, whether you impose that sense, people are going to think that, you know, you're rich or you're here to fix things. And that's just how it is, unfortunately. Um, so we went in very much saying, like, we're not here to do anything for you. <laughs> um, we know what's happened in your country. So we had a school through a long story of connections. We had been connected with a school and refugee camp, like I said, who had, who had allowed us to come and visit. And they said we could come into the school every day, just sit in their classrooms, watch how their class was done and interact with the parents. Um, So that's what we did. And we just said, people would say frequently, like, why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you here? And we, Mm. they were Christians. It was a Christian school. And so we said, you know, we're Christians as well. And we heard about what happened in your country and what's happening. And we heard about your resilience, by how you built the school with your own rations and your own money. Um, And we think that's really amazing. And we just, we wanted to come in and just sit with you and say, like, we heard about it. And we love you and we want to pray for you and be with you. And I think just taking away that like sense of, there's often a sense of disempowerment when it comes to refugees, um, but giving them the sense of dignity and saying, what's your name? You know, what did you do in your country? What do you like to do? What are you proud about? And not asking a refugee or someone who's been displaced, like what's your story? Because we always say that, like, you know, what's your story? And when we say that, we mean like, how are you displaced? But their story and their Mm -hmm. lives are so much more than that. You know, they were raised and <laughs> went to school, and like the the principal of that school had, got his master's degree in teaching in India, and he's just wow. an amazing man. Yeah, and he owned land and farms, and amazing, amazing man. And so, I think it was just like that. How we built relationships was, you know, just to sit with the mothers as they cooked and prepared for the kids' lunch, and say, "Could you teach us? Um, you know, could you teach cool. us some of your language? Could you teach us how you cook?" What do you like to do? Um, What do you think your kids like to do? And what do you think your kids need? Um, And then letting them talk more than you talk. Um, Mm -hmm. And then just playing with the kids a lot. You know, (laughs) kids love to play. uh, (laughs) And they have so much energy. So just playing with them whenever we could. And Mm -hmm. never saying, hopefully, I pray, we never once made them feel disempowered. Um, And just wanted to know that regardless of, you know, the fleeing part of their story, they had a whole life story. And we were interested in that. Um, Mm. And we believe that they could help their kids better than we could. And that's, that's why we wanted to hear from them. And then implementing it was a lot of still relationship building, saying what we had thought of implementing the program we made up and asking continually. I remember asking, because I would meet with parents in like groups of three, it was like African time. So we were like, I'd be like, I'll meet with the parents at noon. And some parents would come at like 5 p.m. <laughs> it was <laughs> close enough. Um, so I was always meeting with kind of smaller groups of the parents and just saying, hey, this is the program we thought we're trying to implement it now. Would you come into the classroom and see? Um, is there any part that you don't agree with? Do you think this is good for your children? Do you think not? Because if not, we're not gonna do it. And I remember two of the mothers, ones when I was meeting, it was just two of them, or three, and they started to cry. And I was, we had to have a translator, obviously. And I said, you know, why are you crying? And it was the principal of the school was translating. And she said, no organization has ever asked us what we want. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think implementing, and I still do that every time I go and sit with them, I just say, is there anything you don't like? Is there anything you want to add? Is there anything you think that doesn't benefit your child or that would benefit them more? Would you like mm. to be part of that? Or, and just always giving them that opportunity to, to tell us first.
0: That is so amazing. And how is their reaction if you met the same people on the second trip when you actually gave them what they wanted and what they needed?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't believe we, we were back. Uh, so we have to go through a refugee council. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: So we can't just go into refugee camp. We need government approval, legal pass to get in. And then we have to go through like some form of refugee council as well. And so the refugee council, our colleague who works with us there, he said in his four or five years he's been working there, we were only the second team to ever actually return. So I think a lot of teams, yeah, through his council, anyways, not just in general, but just through their refugee council. And uh, I think a lot of people have visited that school actually, because a lot of people have heard the story of how amazing the school is and the people. And people visit and always promise to return and never do. And so Mm -hmm. they were shocked, and the kids were like, the kids actually couldn't believe we were back. They're like, why are you back? And every time I've gone back since, they always say, like you, like this past time, I was there in December and they said, you keep returning. <laughs> why? And I said, because we love you. I think it just shocked them to know that people, they I think they often felt forgotten when people would come and, and say, how can we help? Or we're going to do this and then leave. Um, so I never make promises for one. I never say we will definitely do this or we'll definitely have this many kids in school. We'll be here for a decade to say you know to the best of my ability we're going to try to implement what we talked about no promises but we'll come back for you if we can to the best of our ability Um, and people are really shocked and i think they feel really loved especially as christians when they say when i say you know our churches are praying or people are donating or people are supporting you from afar um, it means a lot to them every time
0: Mm. wow yeah and so Kind of just some final questions. How do you think we should be better stewards of the world of just taking care of the people around us wherever we are?
1: Yeah, I think they always say like kindness or serving starts at home. And I always thought that was really cheesy. And I'd be like, help the people abroad. Uh, But (laughs) I think it really does matter. Like, you know, if you're not going to serve your own community or your own family, why are you going to do it in another country? And that comes back to voluntarism and kind of assessing where you are. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think to be better stewards of a global world, we have to, I think, for one, take care of ourselves. We really underestimate that. But you need to be rested, and you need to be exercised. You need to be well fed and be taken care of and have a healthy body. And you need to take care of your mind. What goes in your mind is what you're going to speak about. So um, Mm -hmm. I think it starts with you and making sure you're in a healthy place. Because if you're sad, if you're unhealthy, why on Earth, are you going to go help someone? Whether it's your own family or someone in another country, why are you going to go serve them if you're not in a healthy place? And so I think Good. it comes from being healthy with yourself first, and then just loving people around you. Because um, could you imagine if the world was just full of healthy people? <laughs> like I don't think there would be wars, and I don't think there would be displacement if we could all be healthy and kind. I think the world would change drastically. And so while I do definitely think when it comes to great great need and suffering in our world, whether that's in our own country or backyard or wherever, we need to address that. We need to show up for that and we need to see it and not ignore it. Um, Mm -hmm. But if the world was just full of healthy people, we'd be a lot better. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a fair answer. It's a pretty easy one, but I'd say it starts with you. Like We could all just be the best versions of ourselves. It's Mm going to have a ripple effect.
0: Mm, that's such a great answer. And my second to last question is: What is one experience you would recommend our listeners to do to live a regret-free life? Like, whether it be starting at home somewhere, of just mm-hmm. like serving others, or mm-hmm. even going abroad to do something uncomfortable. What is one thing you just recommend people to do?
2: Um, Can I have two things?
0: (laughs) Yeah, go for
1: it. I would recommend get like a full-time job that you like work relentlessly at, whether you hate it or love it. I think earning your own money. I see so many young people who never have really had a full-time job. um, And I think that's going to teach you a lot about yourself. Uh, You're going to learn what it's like to have an income, to support yourself and a bit more about who you are. And secondly, I'd say travel. I don't yeah. care where that is. Like if you're in the US, come to Canada. If you can't go to Yes, wherever. Obviously not right now. Like please
2: <laughs> <provide some laughs>
1: homes. Uh, just don't leave your backyard for now. Um but looking into the future, go travel. And I don't mean go do volunteerism. I mean like like I, and I work with kids in the UK or like young teenagers. I said go to Italy. Like it's right there. It's like 40 pounds to go, like 60 bucks. Yeah. Just go because it's another language and culture. And as humans we get so stuck in one way of mind and one mindset and we think we know what's best and go see someone who thinks differently than you and acts differently and talks differently and doesn't believe what you say and like just learn from that. And so I, yeah, definitely work hard and push yourself in that. Um, it'll teach you about who you are and yeah. go see someone who looks different, talks different and acts different than you. Um, even if it like, like I said, even if it's to Canada or to the U S or go to the UK per week Mm -hmm. and just, yeah, that, that would be my piece of advice probably.
0: Those are such great answers. And (laughs) final question is, do you have anything to plug and promote? Like how can we donate to the Meraki Project, or how can we get onto your quarantine fitness plan? (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: when it comes to the Marquee Project, so the where students actually get their education, so, so we focus on, uh, as you well know, because you've supported us and you've been part of us for a very long time, but the students in their art programs make bracelets with their own patterns and colors, and then that bracelet pays for their education, so a really amazing way, 100% goes back to them, so a really amazing way to support that is to buy one of the bracelets because you provide education for them. Um, fitness just get off the couch <laughs> like you don't have to start a big like relentless fitness plan um but like even if it's going for a walk or doing jumping jacks or just do something because mm-hmm. physical exercise is definitely needed right now <laughs> yeah. while we're all in our houses um, but yeah that's it
0: yeah thank you so much for coming on to my podcast Anika it was so great catching up with you and hearing all your stories about these different places and you serving people it was just truly amazing.
1: Thanks for having me, I really appreciate
0: it. Hey guys, it was so amazing listening to Anika share her stories of serving people all over the world. The topic of volunteerism hit me hard and made me reflect on whether my actions are really helping people or hurting them. I now know the difference, and I still separate the two. I focus on doing ministry work here in the US because we still have people who need help. And I speak English. And whenever I travel, I just simply want to meet people there and learn his culture and embrace it for what it is. So be sure to follow Recovering Travel Junkie on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. Catch us next time, wherever you get your podcasts. See ya.